You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, newsombudsman.org slash about. A news ombudsman receives and investigates complaints from readers or listeners about accuracy, fairness, balance, and good taste in news coverage, including sex podcasts. So we're going to bring on Savage Lovecast's ombudsman now to tackle a few listener complaints. Hello, I'm Dan Savage. I'm the Savage Lovecast's ombudsman. We can't afford an ombudsman, just like a lot of major newspapers can't afford an ombudsman anymore. It's going to be me. All right, first issue... Pot. Kristen writes, let's dispense with promoting an agenda of American society being stoned all the time. Sorry, Dan, I followed you for many years and generally love what you do and say, but constantly promoting pot is telling everyone, including kids, to be high rather than dealing with life, sex, health, etc. in a strong and clear-headed way. This kicked off a debate on my Instagram account about how often I recommend pot. People urged me to recommend Therapy or counseling instead, and there isn't a Savage Lovecast episode that goes by where I am not pushing someone to consider therapy or counseling. I also don't think therapy and counseling and pot are mutually exclusive approaches. I think pot can be good for a person. It's not for everybody. But boy, listening to the anti-pot people go off on my Instagram account this week, it's a little like listening to monogamous go off about non-monogamy. It's not that monogamy isn't for everyone, and so I understand that some people are not monogamous. It's that monogamy is wrong, and you're doing it wrong. And there are a lot of people saying pot is wrong, and if you're using pot, you're doing life wrong, or pot is using you. One person even said, urged, that I recommend that my listeners adopt mindfulness as opposed to pot, as if mindfulness and pot are mutually exclusive phenomena, that you can only do one or the other, but never both, and certainly never both at the same time. I reject that suggestion. I think you can be mindful at times and stoned at times. And I have personally experienced mindful stonedness. It is a thing that people can do. Of course, pot isn't for everyone and everybody doesn't have to get high. And there are people out there with substance abuse problems. And while pot is not addictive, certainly it can be abused and people can become emotionally dependent on it. Twinkies, Doritos, pot, alcohol, dick. All good things in moderation, including moderation. You do need to be immoderate from time to time. But as ombudsman, I got to say, if you feel Dan Savage is recommending pot too often, there are plenty of other podcasts out there, advice shows where they never recommend pot. Perhaps you would enjoy one of them, not instead of the Savage Lovecast, but in addition to the Savage Lovecast for balance. All right, ombudsman issue number two. I was eating dinner in a restaurant, writing Savage Love, when the perfect example of the passive-aggressive, cowardly Seattleite approached me as I was putting a fork full of food into my mouth so that I could not speak because my mother raised me right. You don't talk with a mouthful of food. And slid a note across the table in front of me and then literally ran away and exited the restaurant. And the note said, Dan, the clit is just not the glands. It is a giant and large organ. You give shitty advice. I wish you would stop. All right. We would go to the tape. We would go to all the times that I have discussed at length. 
the structure of the clitoris, this giant organ with clitoral wings and roots, the erectile chambers of the clitoris that are buried deep within the body that are embedded, that anchor the clitoris, the exposed glands. I have talked about this more than any other gay man on the planet has talked about this. I know where the clit is and how big the clit is. How many times have I talked about the reasons why some women can come from vaginal intercourse because their clit, the clitoral tissues are being stimulated inside the clitoral shaft, just like I believe I talked about this just a couple of weeks ago. Some guys like to have their shafts stroked in order to come, not so much attention to the head of the penis. Similarly, there are women out there who like the shafts of their clitorises to get all of the attention. They may need a Hitachi magic wand vibrator to send the sensations deep into the body where they can hit the clitoral shaft, blah, blah, blah. We have discussed this. I think if you're going to pass me a note in a restaurant about how much my advice sucks, you really should be listening to my advice a little bit so you can make an accurate assessment of its general suckiness and Seattle coward passing me a note in a restaurant and then bolting from the room. You are not a listener. Finally, shock collars on dogs. People have a problem with shock collars on dogs. I'm not a dog fan. Have two dogs in my house. Don't like them. Don't want to torture them. If you think shock collars don't belong on dogs, I am right there with you. My husband who loves those dogs, he thinks a shock collar belongs on one of them every once in a while. Personally, my druthers, shock collars are for boyfriends, not for dogs. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro-free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my sucky, sucky advice, and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as long and no ads, Dr. Stephen King, urologist, joins us to discuss what appears to be a male-bodied person, a penis-having person, with a bonus clit. It is a mystery. Dr. Stephen King is here to help us solve it on today's show. Uh, hi, Dan. I'm a 40-year-old male calling from the East Coast uh, city. Um, so here's my predicament. I've been dating someone for the past year who's quite wonderful in every way. She's kind. She's generous. She's um, friendly. Uh, she, we have great sex. She's um, you know, a wonderful partner in almost every way. Um, so the first uh, issue we had was that she's quite spiritual and, and I'm uh, an ardent atheist. And I got past that. Basically, you know, if you believe these crystals are healing you and if you believe the origins of the universe have some deity involved in it, I, I just don't care at this point, you know. Um, but then more recently, she revealed herself to be a bit of a conspiracy theorist. And, and there's where I got a little more concerned. Um, the two uh, conspiracy theories that she was holding on to that really worried me Number one was the uh, Pizzagate. She, she had some doubts about Pizzagate. She saw some things on YouTube that concerned her and made her feel like that might, might be a real pedophile ring in the pizza restaurant. Uh, that concerned me just because of you know, uh, poor judgment and not being able to discern the evidence. Uh, but then one, another one that she espoused that really concerned me was that she has uh, concerns about vaccines. And, and that one would you know, obviously affect us if, if we had a future together because we, we both want children. And, um, you know, that was very concerning. And she's, she's pretty, you know, um, she's pretty tied to these beliefs. And um, I don't know if I'm in the business of, of trying to, you know, argue with her and try and, uh, try and disabuse her of these, of these uh, conspiracies. Um, I just don't know if it's healthy and if it's even possible because, you know, she, she's a, quite a, a bright woman. And, and, you know, she may have these bizarre beliefs, but she's uh, quite 
quite confident in her, you know, her way of thinking. Um, and, and I just want to emphasize what I said earlier was that she's really fantastic in every other way. You know, my friends love her. My family loves her. She's, she's very nice. We haven't had, you know, uh, any real major problems in a year aside from these conflicts in our beliefs. And like I said, the spirituality was the first thing that came up. And that was, we got over that. The fact that she was very spiritual and I'm very atheist. Um, you know, and, and that, 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 you know, there's some issue there, right? With her, her lack of need for real evidence. Um, but when it came up with these conspiracy theories, they really concerned me. So I'd just like to get your advice on if this is possible to get past or not and what you, know, what you think I should do. Thanks. I describe myself as an atheist most of the time, although sometimes I describe myself as an agnostitheist, kind of an atheist-agnostic hybrid. My problem with a lot of religious people is that they're pretending to know something that they ultimately can't know and can't prove. That's where the faith comes in. You can't know it. You can't prove it. But you believe it, you choose to believe it, you have faith, and, you know, I can't prove that there is no higher power. I don't know how the universe came into being. I don't know how it ends. We don't know what else is out there on the outer edges or inside. I, I don't know. I can't prove absolutely positively that there is no God. They can't prove that there is, and I think that I believe I'm paraphrasing Christopher Hitchens here. The person who's making the extraordinary claim has to offer the proof. When people say, prove there is no God, it's like, I'm not claiming that I have a magic friend with magic powers who does magic things on earth. That's a remarkable claim, and it's on you to prove it. If I told you I had the Hope Diamond in my pocket, you would have a right to ask me to produce the diamond, to pull it out of my pocket and prove it. So I'm willing to give the spiritual shit a pass. This crystal and this savior and this woo-hooery, partly because it may have a placebo effect for some people, make some people feel better. Even there are some studies that I don't necessarily put much stock in that show it can make people feel a little physically better, but emotionally it can make people feel a little safer and more secure in what is ultimately a terrifying and random universe that none of us are going to get out of alive. That said conspiracy theories, things that can be disproved and are and have been disproved, things like believing that there is a child pedophile ring run out of the basement of a pizza joint in Washington, D.C. that has no basement. That's just fucking nuts. I'll date someone. I would date somebody who was a little spiritual. I'm not going to date somebody who's fucking nuts. And if this woman is ready, willing, and able to believe conspiracy theories about Hillary Clinton running a pedophile ring out of the basement of a pizza parlor that doesn't have a basement, eventually she'll get around to believing incredibly bizarre and untrue things about, say, you. So, yeah, no. When someone tells you they're an anti-vaxxer, when someone tells you there's something to Pizzagate, 9-11 was an inside job, Sandy Hook was staged and there are such things as crisis actors and they've all been airlifted into Parkland, Florida. They are disqualifying themselves. Someone who puts stock in those kinds of conspiracy theorists, that's like someone who's into, and I'm sorry, and perhaps this is an unfair comparison, my apologies in advance to the scat community, but that's kind of like being into shit, right? If you are into shit, seriously into shit, you need to get out there in the world and find other people into shit and date them. And the internet was invented to bring you together, just like the internet was invented to bring conspiracy theorists together. She can find like-minded fuckwits out there with whom she can sit at home 
and fantasize about what the crystals are doing for her and the higher powers are doing for her, which again, I wouldn't have a problem with personally. I could date somebody like that, but also then fantasize about all the non-existent children being non-existently raped by Hillary Clinton, who actually exists in the basement of that pizza parlor that doesn't exist because it has no basement. Yeah, no. Get out. Get out now. The crazy. It's coming from inside the girlfriend. Run. Hi, Dan. I am a 25-year-old female, and I'm in a serious relationship with another man who is my age. Um, Our relationship started off as very casual. Um, We got into a lot of kinky BDSM stuff very early on. And I honestly thought it was just kind of going to be a fling, but it turned into something very serious. And I am actually living with him now. We're very serious. And something has come up or something that we've been talking about for quite a few months now has been bringing in a third person, particularly another male, which has he's into cuckolding and he's had fantasies about it and I have fantasies about it as well, but I'm kind of just getting cold feet about it because I'm afraid that if it actually happens, if he actually sees me fucking another man, then he's going to change his mind and get mad and it won't turn out the way we'd hoped it would and that it might be better off as a fantasy. And I guess my main reservation of why I'm so scared to seek it out is because we haven't told each other that we love each other, which I I guess this is a matter of opinion, but I feel like we're kind of past that point where we should have, we should be telling each other that we love each other. And I just don't want to be the one to say it first, Uh, but we do live together. So I think that we're past that point and I would just feel more comfortable doing something like that with him if he told me that he loved me. So I just wanted to know what you would think about the situation and if you think that it would be a safer situation for our relationship if we continued to do the cuckolding at a time when we knew we were in love. First of all, you're right to be concerned. There are a lot of guys out there who fantasized about cuckolding scenarios, which is where their partner, usually the wife, usually the wife who's been importuned, often begged for years to do this, you're the rare girlfriend who's up for it and equally excited about it right out of the gate. But a wife who's been begged or girlfriend's been begged for years to do this, there are lots of cases where the couple goes and does it and the boyfriend or husband who's been fantasizing about this for a very long time has an intensely negative reaction in the moment to the reality of watching the wife or girlfriend get with another guy. Which is why you don't start with you sucking off another man in front of him. You start with flirting with another man in front of him. You start with going out to a bar or a club and allowing other guys to approach you or buy you drinks and having a flirtatious conversation, maybe getting a couple of phone numbers while he hangs back and observes and he can see how that feels. And then maybe you go out another night. This is called baby steps in the industry. Goes out another night. And you dance with a guy or two, go out another night, make out in the corner of a bar at a time when you can't go home and you're not going to go home with anybody. And you make that clear to the guy you're making out with and let him watch that and see how he feels not about you sucking some other guy's dick, but sucking some other guy's tongue. And you take these little tiny baby steps until you get to a place where you're both ready to step over that final threshold, break through that last barrier. 
And you'll have a better sense and feel more secure about how he's going to react in the moment to the full realization of his fantasy if he's had these opportunities to see it kind of going down, not you going down, but a flirtation, a makeout session, some grinding on the dance floor to see that going down. As for the haven't told you I love you yet, uh, you live together. This has been going on for a long time. You don't want to say it first. Maybe he doesn't want to say it first. Jesus Christ, the two of you. Take some ecstasy and get it over with. Say it to each other at the exact same time. And there's nothing about I love you. There's nothing about those magic three little words that are going to protect you from a potential negative reaction. A lot of those people who the first time they fantasized about cuckolding for a long time, first time they watched the wife get with another dude, had a meltdown. It was in the context of a relationship where they'd been saying I love you to each other for a very long time. I love you is not going to inoculate him against a potential meltdown. And a word of warning to anyone out there who's thinking about doing cuckolding, one thing I've observed over the years from hearing from lots of women who went and finally agreed to do this for their partner is every once in a while, the dude has a kind of slut-shamey, shitty, violent, punitive reaction and blames the wife or the girlfriend or gets really angry because they did it wrong. They appeared to like it too much. If that happens, if some dude is begging you to cuckold him, you've been with this guy for a while, married to this guy for a while, hopefully you don't have kids with this guy yet, and he has that kind of reaction, I think that's DTMFA shit right there. Fulfilling someone's fantasy and then they blow up at you and kink shame you or sex shame you or slut shame you for doing what they begged you to do for all those years, that is evidence of some deeper, more disturbing issue that will, if you stay with that person, continue to manifest in ways that are not going to be pleasant. So that's something if I were in this situation and my boyfriend or husband and I was the wife was saying, cuckled me, cuckled me, cuckled me. This is something that I would put on the table at the outset. You have a, I do what you want. I'm going to do what you want. We're going to do this. I'm going to help you realize this fantasy. You blow up at me. You have some irrational, insane meltdown about it. And it's the last time you're ever going to see me. Hey, Dan, I'm a 34-year-old straight guy, and I'm feeling a bit lost. Um, I'm about to make a large geographic change, which I find exciting. I'm moving from Georgia to Colorado. And part of that excitement comes from the prospect of meeting and hopefully dating and having sex with new women. However, as excited as I am, I've been getting very conflicting, confusing, and honestly kind of disheartening information from women when discussing how to attract women and become more successful in the dating and fucking pool. I'm an attractive and athletic guy. I don't seem to have any issues getting dates, but I can't seem to get any farther than that. And the advice I am receiving from my female friends seems honestly a little bit outrageous. Uh, I work in a female-dominated profession, which has led to a large number of my friends being very smart and well-rounded women, in my opinion. But I'm being told, basically, that I'm too respectful, that I ask too much permission in the bedroom, that I need to be far more aggressive and that I need to literally objectify women more. These are the conversations that I've been having with women. And these things don't really fit my personality. And especially considering the backdrop of the Me Too movement and that sexual assault and misconduct seem to overwhelmingly be committed by men that have these behavior traits, I just, I simply, I have no idea what to do about it. I don't know how to take it. A lot of the research into 
women's sexual fantasies, uh, women's sexual and erotic response would seem to contradict a lot of the messages, like you said, that we're getting from the Me Too movement and Time's Up, that women want to be wanted. Women want men to sort of be overwhelmed by their desire for them and then to be a little out of control. But that's what women want to be performed or what women want to feel, but women don't want to be made to feel unsafe by that. They want the guy to be lustful, but they don't want the guy to be dangerous and out of control. They want the guy to be confident, but not aggressive or threatening. And I think some of the women, some of your friends, maybe you need to get additional female friends out there, not just the women in your industry that you're talking to, mislabeling confidence as aggression. You have to be confident about what you want. You have to be confident that this is person that you're approaching or dating or crawling into bed with after that successful first date is what you want and you need to ask for it. You need to obtain their consent, confident in your own desire for this person and with some swagger, self-assurance that doesn't tip into menace that they desire you in the same way and you're asking them to give you what they wish to give you. Now, we talk about women with rape fantasies. That's come up a lot over the years and some people want to reframe that as ravishment fantasies because women with rape fantasies, quote unquote, want to be taken by the men who take them. So it is not rape when you have sex with someone that you would like to have sex with, but sometimes these are presented in ways that the culture, rape culture, all of it creates desires that work with the shit that's out there floating around and the obstacles and the fears. Anyway, you know, I haven't watched you in action, but I suspect that in the moment when you think that you are being incredibly careful about obtaining consent and not seeming aggressive or intimidating, that you may be coming across as cringing and fearful. And that's not attractive. That kind of lack of confidence in your own desirability and your desire for this person, that is not attractive. People want people to want them who feel like they are wanted back. And if your style in that moment is to be so self-critical or so self-effacing or so demeaning of your own desirability, you can turn people off. I'd like to kiss you. I know you, no one would ever want to kiss me. And I, you know, I know I'm not all that, but I'd really like to kiss you because you are. That's not attractive. When you ask someone if you can kiss them, it has to come from a place where you are presenting yourself as someone that they would want to kiss back or want to fuck back or want to fucking suck back when you go in and ask for consent. And what men have to be conscious of at all times is that women live in fear of male sexual violence. So you have to give people the out. You have to make sure you're asking at a time and a place where a woman feels empowered to say no, to get up and go, if they feel the need to get up and go, while at the same time presenting yourself in a confident way as somebody that they might not want to get up and go from. So, sir, don't think of it as aggression. Think of it as confidence. Confidence in your desirability. Confident that if you ask, you're going to get a yes, while at the same time, Making it clear to that person that if the answer is no, it's no. Sometimes the best way to do that is to say that. I really want to kiss you. The answer is no, that's cool. That's fine. Please say it. I can hear it. But man, I really want to kiss you. There's a way – I'm sorry to do like role play there, scary Uncle Dan getting all sexy in your earbuds. But there is a way to 
ask for consent while giving someone the out without making you sound like someone that they wouldn't want to get with in the first place. Or you can be confident. You don't have to be a cringing mass of jello in the corner to make somebody else feel empowered and safe. You can be strong. You can be present. You can be desirable. You can regard yourself that way. Present yourself that way. While at the same time not making someone else feel unsafe or not empowered to leave if they want to leave or say no or say no, not right now if that's what they want to say. Anyway, I think what you need to do is videotape your entire next date and the, everything that goes down after and send it to me. And then I can offer you perhaps a more useful critique and better advice than I've been able to offer you with what you've given me so far. Hey, Dan, longtime listener, first time caller here. I'm a 29 year old bisexual female who is in the midst of a relationship with a daddy, and I identify as a baby girl. It's been going great. We met in Fat Life, and we also consider ourselves to be in an open relationship. Lately, I've been struggling with some jealousy about my daddy playing with another couple. I don't really have a problem with him playing with others. I'm just starting to feel kind of left out. This couple also has spotlight profiles, and I noticed that they also play with females. So since I am on my daddy's profile pretty prominently, I know that they've seen me and probably know that I am open to play with them. They haven't contacted me. They haven't indicated any interest through talking with my daddy, so I'm just kind of feeling rejected and insecure and crummy about it, and I'm hoping you can share some perspective on the situation. They're not into you. You need to have a conversation with your daddy about how you handle that. There are couples out there in open relationships, particularly a lot of same-sex couples, who have a hard and fast rule. They only play together because it will introduce conflict or tension to their relationship if one of them is running off to play with someone who by not wanting to play with them together is communicating to the other boyfriend or the other husband that they don't find them attractive and that the husband who is home alone or the boyfriend who's home alone that night will feel rejected not just by these strangers or play partners but in a sense by their partner that their partner's not showing them loyalty that their partner is willing to go and have sex with someone who tells them that they don't think that their primary partner is attractive or hot or sexy. And it can be experienced by the person left home alone as a betrayal. And that's not a conversation you need to have with this couple. Everybody on earth who's attracted to women is not obligated to be attracted to you. But you need to have a conversation with your daddy about what it means when he is willing to play with someone who isn't willing to play with you even though you are, by dint of your gender – alone qualified to play with them. And if it makes you feel bad, your anger isn't with the people he's playing with. Your issue isn't with the people he's playing with. Your issue is with him. You need to have a conversation about, look, I don't feel good about this when you go play with someone and I am excluded from that play. So let's have an only play together rule. But also you should think about like, what if they wanted to play with you and you weren't attracted to them? You're under no obligation to sleep with them just because your partner wants to, right? Well, they're under no obligation to sleep with you just because your partner is sleeping with them. Again, the issue is your partner and what your partner owes you and what loyalty means in your open relationship. 
lot of people in closed relationships, they define loyalty as neither of us ever touches anyone ever with our genitals. That is the beginning and ending of loyalty in a lot of people's minds when it comes to committed relationships. But in an open relationship, loyalty takes many different forms and you guys get to define it. Loyalty takes many different forms and two people in an open relationship get to define what loyalty looks like in their relationship. And a lot of people in open relationships, a lot of couples in open relationships define loyalty as we play together or we play not at all. Hey, Dan. So I recently talked to my wife about opening up our relationships slightly and being a little monogamish. And um, she's pretty hesitant. Uh, she's freaked out at first. But I just really think that she would be into it if uh, she just let herself be open to the idea. And it seems like her main concern is, what am I going to tell my family? To which I say, nothing. Why would you tell your parents about our sex life, right? So I don't know. I'm just wondering, like, do you think this is weird that she's so concerned about that? And how do I help her get past that? So like, maybe we could explore together. There are things a mother has a right not to know, as my mother used to say. And unless you two are polyamorous, unless you two are bringing an extra girlfriend or a couple of extra girlfriends home for Christmas, your family doesn't need to know. It would be nice if everybody who was in an open relationship felt comfortable sharing that information with their family. There'd be less stigma, just like the country. A lot of people got better about gay issues gay rights as they came to know the gay people that they knew there will be less stigma and shame and discrimination against people in open relationships as more people who are in open relationships feel comfortable coming out to their families about them but you are not obligated to come out to your family about how you two choose to conduct your private life if you get a girlfriend if you have a long-term committed relationship become a thruple if somebody moves in with you kind of kind of have to be out because you can't ask your third your bonus girlfriend to be closeted to preserve the appearance of monogamy for your family's comfort. But if you guys are just having adventures, occasionally having three ways, there's no reason, there's no need to share that with mom, even if you have the kind of relationship with mom where you tell her, quote unquote, everything. I wonder, hearing you tell me about your girlfriend and her hesitance to open up the relationship because she doesn't know what to tell her parents, whether your girlfriend wants to open the relationship up at all. Putting that on the table, oh, I would be totally down. I'm totally open for an open relationship, but we really can't because what are we going to tell my mom? That could just be a dodge. That could be your girlfriend saying, I don't want this, but I can't take responsibility. I, I don't want to tell you that I don't want it because I don't want you to get mad at me. So I'm going to point to something outside of myself, outside of our relationship that prevents me from allowing this to happen. Have a conversation with your girlfriend about what's really going on. Does she have the kind of relationship where she tells mom everything? Well, maybe this is good practice because there are going to be things over the course of your adult life that you probably don't want to tell your mom about and this can be the first. But if you drill down and the issue is that she doesn't really want this at all and it was easier to blame mommy than risk incurring your wrath by telling you no, that's a whole other conversation you two need to have about the dynamics in your relationship, how you two communicate with each other, and the future of your sex life, if not the future of your relationship. Hey, Dan. I'm a 33-year-old gay male. I have a best friend who has this guy that she's not really seeing. I'm not sure what their relationship is, but he's older and he's married, and 
he has bought her really expensive gifts and now he bought her an apartment to live in. The thing is, he hasn't asked her for anything. He hasn't even tried to have sex with her. And it weirds me out because I don't know what this guy wants. If he isn't trying to have sex with her, isn't trying to date her, but buying her all this stuff, it sounds so weird to me. I just want to know how should I look at this guy? Is this something that's going to be a bad thing or what does this mean? I can understand why it sounds weird to you. I don't understand what it has to do with you. None of your business. Literally, this should be in the dictionary, at least the Wikipedia entry about none of your business. Uh, just play your call. There should be an MP3 link and your call is played. This is literally none of your business. You don't even mention that your friend is expressing to you any discomfort or qualms about this relationship. She's a sugar baby. There's an incredibly wealthy man out there who wants to lavish her with incredibly expensive gifts, including a goddamn apartment for reasons that I assume he can articulate, but probably not going to articulate them to his sugar baby's gay best friend. Who's curious. I don't think it's financial domination. There's usually elements of humiliation with financial domination. And it's usually somebody who's distant, who's the financial dominant who takes and doesn't give much in return. If she spends a lot of time with him, and they hang out, even if they're not having sex, that could be all that he wants, to be out, to have the attention and focus of a pretty girl, to have her literally in his debt so that there is this power imbalance. And so long as he's not leveraging anything out of her that she doesn't wish to share with him by using that power imbalance, by using that leverage, literally isn't a problem. It certainly isn't your problem. You know, we hear more and more about financial domination. It is a thing, and I think it is a kink that is being kicked up into people's erotic imaginations and into the culture by income inequality. We live in a world where someone – there are people out there who are wealthy enough to acquire a boyfriend or a girlfriend who is with them just because they have enough money, extra money laying around that they can buy clothes and vacations and cars and apartments – people. I think there's a tax the rich story here in the whole emergence, not just of the Findoms who take 25 bucks a pop off someone on through their Tumblr Findom profile, but Findoms or sugar babies who are getting apartments and cars and clothes out of the deal. That tells me that there are some people out there with way too much fucking money. And maybe we need to uh, do a little wealth redistribution that isn't just through sugar baby, sugar daddy sites, but through the IRS and through the provision of a guaranteed basic income or guaranteed access to healthcare or something else, something along those lines. So anyway, I guess I just have income inequality on my mind and I don't think anyone's linked the emergence of sugar baby, sugar daddy and Findom as a, a burgeoning kink community fetish to income inequality. But am I crazy? Is it just me? I think there might be a link. Hi, Dan. So two weeks ago, I ended up having a long day of drinking on a Sunday and went home uh, with someone and had sex with someone that I had been brewing a huge crush on for a number of weeks. What has come to pass since that night is him making a few jokes about the drinks and saying thanks for having me, but 
ultimately putting off my invites to spend time together again until finally saying he's willing to hang out, but only if it is as friends. I feel disappointed and embarrassed and a little bit mortified that instead of pursuing a normal date or hang out with my crush, I went home with him on the first night that we hung out together. My question is this, what do I do? It seems like now when I've tried to broach the fact that we should talk about what happened or maybe spend some time together, he's not super interested. And I feel like trying to backtrack and figure out where we went wrong or if we could start over again is not going to be successful. How do you undo what's already been done? And is there any hope for me to make this into a situation where I could actually see this person again sober and not as just a hookup? If he's the kind of guy who would hold it against you, hold it against a woman, that she went home with him the first time they hung out, they were drunk, she went home with him, they had sex, so therefore she's no one he ever wants to see. Oh my God, what a slut. How can he look at himself ever again? He did exactly the same thing you did. And yes, there are double standards out there, but you don't want to date a guy who puts stock in sexist double standards. Like it's okay for a dude to do exactly what he did that night, but there's something unladylike, untoward about the fact that you did the same goddamn thing he did. So if that's what happened here, you won't want to, you don't want to see him again. You didn't make the mistake of going home with him on that first night. If that was a mistake, you both made that mistake. So if he's holding that against you, fuck him. So if it's that, you don't want to see him again. If it's not that, then there's some other reason that he doesn't want to see you again. I can't tell you what that reason is. Only he knows what that reason is. And he's unlikely to share it with you. It could be something that sharing it with you would just be cruel and could shred your self-esteem and leave you in much worse shape than he found you. And it could be nothing but chemically you guys didn't click sexually you didn't click there was something about the way you like to do it that wasn't the way he liked to do it and it just was awkward and unpleasant and he doesn't want to do it again and doesn't feel like you're right for him and so he has pulled out the rest of the way out all the way out now and you can't force the issue you liked him you got with him didn't work out either it didn't work out because he's an asshole or it didn't work out because you're not someone that he wants to be with going forward. Literally nothing you can do in either case. So luckily for you, he's not the only guy on the planet. Four billion other guys out there on the planet, many of them of legal age, many of them in your area. Go get day drunk with some of them. No, actually don't get day drunk again. Go hang out with some of them. Hi, Dan. I am a 20-something cis bi-identified woman who is living in California. I have a question. I have a friend who recently transitioned to female. She is um, now a trans woman, and I'm really overjoyed that she was able to do that. However, when she was male identified, she did something to me that I wouldn't really put under the moniker of sexually okay. Um, when I was about 17 and just starting college, she, who at that time was a lot older than me, probably about 22 or 24, asked to take me out on a date. We went out on a date. She decided to grab me, French kiss me without asking and pressure me to come up to her apartment. I found out also years later that she had spread rumors about, about me 
among my group of friends saying that I was leading her on and that I, uh, you know, basically wasn't to be trusted because of that and that she at the time was really heartbroken. Now she is on Facebook making lots of great posts about what it is to be trans and great posts about what it is to be a feminist. But I still have these memories of her and spent many years feeling guilty about, quote unquote, leading her on. But now uh, in my late 20s, I realized that, in fact, I wasn't leading her on and was pretty clear about not wanting to go up to her apartment with her and was pretty clear about just wanting to be friends with her. My question is, do I bring this up to her and how do I do that? I don't think this has anything to do with the trans issue. That's completely irrelevant. What we have here is someone who a decade ago behaved in a way that was inappropriate, that made you feel pressured or preyed upon and retaliated sort of in advance before you could tell anyone what happened so that people would doubt you. And all of that was manipulative and creepy and sexually inappropriate. And it was a decade ago. Now your friend seems to have got religion about feminism, about what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. And and the question here is, is your friend a hypocrite? Is your friend still doing these sorts of horrible, shitty things? Uh, And the amazing posts on Facebook about feminism and about being a trans woman uh, are hypocritical because their behavior in private is in conflict with their public pronouncements or is their behavior in private now in alignment with their public pronouncements? Did they see the error of their ways and get better? Well, I think there's only one way for you to verify that, and that's to have a conversation with this person. And I think that you would benefit from having a conversation with this person because I detect a little tremor in your voice as you talk about this experience. And I believe that you may still be angry, hurt, traumatized by what she did to you then. And if she is the right-on trans feminist that she claims to be, then she is down with accountability. You should hold her accountable. I don't think that means necessarily having to go public and say, you did this a decade ago, therefore what you are saying now is a lie. You can do that eventually if you feel that you need to. But I think the first salvo, the first approach, the first line of attack, not that it should be framed as an attack, is to reach out to her privately and say, I find myself reading your Facebook posts and nodding in agreement and then thinking about the way we interacted, the way you treated me, not the way we interacted, the way you treated me, what you did to me when I was a teenager. And I'm wondering how you feel now about the way you behaved then. And then see what she says. Hopefully, she will come through with an apology. Hopefully, she will be able to discuss with you her actions then and take responsibility for them and sincerely apologize for them and walk you through her thought process, walk you through her growth, what brought her to this place now where she can understand what was wrong with how she behaved then without using the, I was trans and closeted and experiencing gender dysphoria and I'm not responsible for my actions. No, no, no. responsible for her actions then. She was responsible for her actions then. She needs to take responsibility for them now. And then see how you feel after you have that conversation. You know, people are often of two minds. When there's someone in their past, they feel that they've wronged. They realize now that the way they behaved was wildly inappropriate. People kind of get conflicting messages about what to do. Because some people want to reach out and they want to apologize. And 
Right? They ask for advice or they talk about that online and they're told you're just seeking absolution. You're making it about you. Leave that person alone. It could be re-traumatizing to hear from you. And so they sit there and they say nothing. And the person that they wronged sits there feeling like, oh my God, this person has never reached out to me. This person has never apologized to me. Some of the people who've been wronged feel that way. They wish the person would reach out and apologize to them. So people are a little paralyzed. They don't know what to do. But for sure, if someone from your past that you have wronged reaches out to you, that is the opportunity. Then your apology is being requested. And so I would encourage you to reach out to this person, to DM her on Facebook, not to make a post about it on Facebook, because you don't know whether there's been growth there. But after you reach out to her, there's more lies, there's more denial, there's more manipulation, victim blaming, slut shaming. If she clings to her story, if she insists that she did nothing wrong, then you can think about whether publicly busting her ovaries about what she did then would be an appropriate thing to do. Hey, Dan, uh, I am a uh, mid-30s gay male uh, calling from the Midwest, and I just heard on 593 the guy calling about the Madonna Horror Complex, and I'm just wondering, you know, I, I wonder if that really also exists in the gay world. I don't know if we have another name for it. I just got out of a six-year relationship about a year ago, and we were together and happy, and sex was fine at first, and then, you know, I just couldn't see him as a sexual being anymore. He was just, he was someone I wanted to, like, hug and cuddle, and, like, I didn't really want to have sex with him anymore, and it just felt awkward, and it was, like, forced, and I was trying to see him as a sexual being, and I just couldn't. And so as I've been single now, I've really just struggled even wanting to try a relationship again just because I'm scared that I'm going to get into another situation where it's going to start off great and the sex is going to be fine and then I'm going to lose interest in it. And I guess in a perfect world, I'd love to have a relationship where I am intimate with somebody and we cuddle, make out, and we do stuff together like friends, but then I go fuck my brains out with somebody else or in my case, many other people <laughs> at random times. Uh, and, and he would be free to do the same thing. And we might play together. We might, uh, you know, play sometimes together without other people. But I, I just I just really struggle with that. And I don't know if there's a name for it in the gay world or what advice you have for someone going into a relationship with that mindset. Because I know I'm not fucked up. I have friends. We all kind of feel the same way. And so I know I'm not like damaged goods. And I don't think I need to see a shrink or anything. Not that it would hurt to talk to about it. But i just just curious as to what your thoughts are. And I'd love to hear from you. There are lots of different ways to make a long-term committed relationship work. Sex doesn't always have to be a part of it. There are people in companionate relationships who never have sex with each other. They have as legitimate a marriage or a relationship as a couple whose relationship is defined by a strong and ongoing sexual connection. There are a lot of same-sex male couples out there where the two guys in that relationship or in that marriage have sex primarily if not exclusively with other people and they get intimacy and support and love and cuddles and companionship and laying next to each other on the couch and holding hands and watching Berlin Babylon from each other and they get their sexual needs met outside the relationship. That doesn't mean that either of these guys are damaged goods. This is what works for them. Just like a couple in a companionate sexless relationship or marriage they're not damaged just because they're not having sex with each other, even if they're not having sex with anybody else, not having sex with anyone. It's what works for them. 
if this is what you know works for you, that at the outset, the beginning of a relationship, there's going to be a sexual component, but over time, that that is going to drain away and what will be left is the intimacy and the connection and the stability and the companionship. I think you put that on the table because you may end up dating a guy who feels the same way and has had the same experience and you might be ideally suited for each other. So put that out there and you're likelier to attract someone who is into what you bring to the table because they're bringing the same shit to the table. The problem is that someone who feels like you and know thyself, it's just like somebody who knows they're incapable of monogamy, making a monogamous commitment. Terrible idea. Knowing what you know of yourself, if you know yourself you, that you can't be monogamous, don't make a monogamous commitment. If you know that this is just the way your libido and your erotic imagination works, that in the context of a long-term committed relationship, sex is going to evaporate, but you're down for the long-term committed relationship, regardless, don't mislead somebody who's capable and, and who wants a long-term committed relationship with an ongoing sexual connection that's active and vibrant. Because you will make that person miserable and that person will make you miserable. There are lots of guys like you out there. Go find one. And I guess I'm dodging the question. Guys like you, guys who feel the way you do, is there something wrong with you that you can't integrate these things, the long-term committed relationship and sexual intimacy? Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's just the way you're wired. Maybe this isn't about moral failing or God, not about moral failing at all. Maybe this isn't about uh, some sort of damage uh, or some sort of toxic masculinity gay version. Maybe this is some intrinsic hardwiring in the way your sex and your erotics work where you're just driven for the new and the strange and the old and the familiar doesn't compel you, doesn't arouse you. And you're a seed spreader. Hardwiring or damage, whichever it is, so long as you're healthy about it, so long as you are communicating well with your potential future partners about it, you're not misleading anyone, you're not lying to them about how you function, how you work, what's best for you, and how you work and how you function, what's best for you isn't damaging the way you integrate it into your life. You're not compulsive, you're not out of control, you're not harming yourself, you're not, sex isn't a hammer that you're beating yourself with or beating your partners with. Hardwiring or damage, if you can fold it into your life in a healthy, constructive way, then not really damage anymore if it was damage. And if it was hardwiring, then it's just the way you work, just the way your dick goes. Recently, by the way, I'm a 21-year-old male in Canada. I was diagnosed with herpes, genital herpes, and positive. I want to know if it's morally okay to try and have one-night stands, even if you do disclose. Or is that just something that's completely off the table now for me? I just have to reserve myself to trying to date people normally and do that. But recently, because of this, I've had a lot more fixation on my penis as one would with an SDI. And I've noticed that the curvature in it's gotten a little more severe, maybe, I don't want to say. And honestly, it's just freaking me out. Like, understand this is normal for someone who's going through all this, but there's a lot of stuff you don't learn about as a kid in sex ed. I'm just looking for some straight answers, Dan. I want to know if, like, straightening a penis actually works, those devices, and there's no straight answer anywhere else in the world, or on the internet at least. Freaks me out. I'm wondering if I should just probably stop masturbating for a while, which is actually just going to do, and see if that maybe helps the curve go away, or if there's anything I can do. It's not like a 20-degree curve, but it feels like it's getting there, and I'm stressed. 
Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Stephen King, board-certified urologist in private practice here in Seattle. Hey, Dr. King, how are you? Uh, very good. Thank you, Dan. Uh, thanks for jumping on the phone. Um, the first thing that he asks is more of a question for an ethicist, but I think we can both weigh in quickly on it. He wants to know if it's morally okay to have a one-night stand uh, if he discloses that he has herpes. And of course, yeah, absolutely. It's morally permissible to have a one-night stand if you disclose you have herpes. Correct? Would you agree? I would completely agree. And I would also say that the fact that he poses the question in the first place tells me that this is somebody who's thinking about the issue and actually is concerned enough uh, you know, to, to bring this up. To me, that tells me that this is probably an individual who has some foresight and is likely going to be responsible going into the future. And hopefully he's going to get on the appropriate medications that can suppress herpes and make him less likely to pass it along to a partner. You know, one of the things that comes up when you talk about herpes, though, is one in six or more people already have it. It's very easily passed through skin-to-skin contact. Uh, a lot of people who have it don't know that they have it. So often the person who knows that they have it is struggling with the stigma and the shame and the burden of disclosing is disclosing to someone who also has it but doesn't know they have it. And people can infect someone without ever knowing that they had herpes. So it's really hard to really wrap – it's really hard to justify the shame and the stigma based on the impact of the disease itself uh, and the way at which it kind of moves through communities that most people don't know they have it, who have it. Most people have been exposed to herpes, don't know they've been exposed. And there are people out there who argue that they don't disclose or shouldn't have to disclose because it's so common and not that big a deal. I am not in the you don't have to disclose camp. I am in the disclose camp. But is there anything else medically that you think he needs to know going forward? No, I I mean, I think you you hit on all the really important points there. I mean, I think it is very prevalent out there. I don't think this is a, uh, you know, the end of his, uh, his life. This is not a end of his sex life. He can certainly proceed forward, but, um, I think having the knowledge is very important. I absolutely agree with you. I think disclosure is very important at this point. Um, I mean, he's a, he's a 21 year old, he's an adult, he has an adult penis. Now he needs to treat it like an adult penis and, and bring it to society in that way and say, you know, he can cause harm uh, to uh, by not disclosing this to others. That doesn't mean he can't have a healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that there's not methods you can take to help to decrease the uh, transmission, like you said, medications, uh, condom use, and certainly avoiding uh, intercourse when he has active lesions. That's a big thing is when someone has active lesions, they really probably shouldn't be participating in intercourse in that setting because even with condoms and so forth, the transmissions rates are much higher. Moving on to the other part of his question, and he seemed, when I listened to the call, to be linking these two things that I don't think are linked. He was diagnosed with herpes. He sounds really traumatized by that. My heart goes out to you. The stigma and shame creates that trauma. We need to undo the stigma and shame around it. But he's also experiencing some curvature of the penis. And he says it's not quite a 20% curve, but it's getting there. And he suggests that this may be related, the herpes diagnosis to the curvature. And that's not possible. That's not the case. Herpes doesn't bend dicks. Is that right? Absolutely. That is that is correct. Um, these are two totally different phenomenon, totally separate. The, uh, the herpes involves, of course, the nerve endings, uh, the sensory nerves of the penis, which run really through the skin and then to the nerves deep into the body. And the mechanism for erection, which is the bending, is really an internal structural issue with the penis 
I think we talked about it once long ago called Peyronie's disease mm-hmm. as a term for some curvature in certain settings. But these are totally anatomically not linked at all. But, you know, I think he was talking about some of his, you know, extra genital awareness with his, you know, his herpes diagnosis. And now he's paying much more close attention. He's finding details that he may not have found otherwise. But based on what he was talking about with his curvature, I don't think he has to be too concerned at this point. I mean, less than 20 degree curvature for most people is not a functional problem. And, you know, very likely, especially in a young 21 year old male, development of a real severe curvature is very, very rare. So I don't think these should be linked. But Peyronie's disease is a buildup of plaque in the erectile tissue that can cause the, the uh, dick to bend, sometimes painfully so, and make erections painful. It's not just like a, a naturally curved or bent dick, which happens. There are sometimes dicks that they called, they used to call them Gonzo's nose when Gonzo the Muppet was still culturally relevant. Gonzo the Muppet ain't so culturally relevant at the moment. <laughs> Gonzo didn't make a comeback with the new Muppet series on ABC. They got canceled pretty quick. But bent dicks, curved dicks, dicks that curve up or down or even a little to the side uh, are normal dicks. Peyronie's disease is something else entirely. Correct. There, there, is a, there are congenital curvatures. And in some cases, it takes a sexual, you know, it, it can take a, an infection or something different to cause someone to actually notice that they had a curvature. Some, you know, although we all like to think we know our, our dicks very, very well, Sometimes we learn about them a little bit later in life and uh, something comes along and you start paying more and more attention to it. So it's possible that he could have had a, a curvature pre-existing, but he does also comment that he thinks maybe it's curving a little bit more. And in this setting, Peyronie's disease, where you do get a you know, scar and plaque laid down on the inside of the penis, really would be a little less common in someone in this scenario. Mm-hmm. Usually there's, some, there's either some more obvious trauma or there's some kind of circumstance and it typically occurs a little bit later in life as well. But uh, that being said, you know, you can watch it. And I don't think a little curvature is a reason not to use it. I think uh, this is not something that is going to be a, uh, a serious diagnosis for him. Neither the herpes nor the penile curvature. None of these are fatal diagnoses. None of these are fatal to a sex life as well. So, you know, I think I think he needs to come to terms to some degree with the changes that have occurred, his new diagnosis, and certainly this is, these are lifelong issues to consider and often associated with anxiety, you know, some depression and so forth. But over time, I think he can realize that this will, will not affect his long-term health nor his ability to have a very healthy long-term sex, uh, sex so, life. So you're, so you're a urologist. At what point if a guy is concerned about a curve in his dick and he's scrutinizing his dick very closely right now and thinking maybe it's getting a tiny bit more pronounced, at what point should a young person who has this concern make an appointment to go see a urologist? It's, it's fine to go see a urologist just for some reassurance and to be told there isn't a problem. But if he's going to monitor his dick going forward, at what point should someone say, all right, my dick's bent. Maybe it's a little benter than before. I'm going to go to the urologist. When does a guy say that to himself to, to, to eliminate or address the possibility of Peyronie's disease? Well, I mean, I think at any point, you know, I think that if it's causing anxiety, if it's causing stress, then that by itself would be a reason to at least go have the conversation. You know, I think uh, you know, in most of these cases, it's going to be, you know, fairly benign and it's going to be a very much of a discussion focused around reassurance. But, you know, at the same time, if you can get a baseline exam and then have something to go with, because 
the diagnosis and finding out if it's a really a, a true clinical or pathological diagnosis of Peyronie's disease. It's not that straightforward. It does sometimes require multiple examinations, perhaps every six months or a year, and, uh, and sometimes some photographic evidence that people can take on their own and bring to the physician, which is always a, a interesting thing these days when photographs are on phones and on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, that's, that's very, very useful for us uh, as physicians to be able to document that and to see what's going on. But, you know, I would say if, if there's anxiety and concern um, and there's noticeable change, and I think that's the biggest difference, if there's truly a noticeable change, because once again, many people are born with some degree of congenital curvature. They've had it their whole life. As long as it's not functionally obstructing them from having adequate or pleasurable intercourse for themselves or their partners, as long as it's functional, uh, for the most part, there's not really a problem. So if someone does have Peyronie's disease and it's no longer functional, that the erection is painful, the curvature has gotten much worse, intercourse is impossible, um, is there or are there emerging effective treatments? What I've been told, but I haven't discussed Peyronie's disease recently, is that there's not a lot that can be done very effectively to treat it. Well, you know, in part that's true, but in part we do have some new things that are coming out. I mean, one thing that the caller had mentioned he was talking about some stretching devices that were out there. He was maybe buying some penile stretching things. There, there really is no uh, FDA-approved penile stretching device that I'm aware of, at least at this point. Uh, certainly, most of these things are going to be purchased online, so there's not a lot of good quality control. But there are some studies that show for very mild Peyronie's disease um, that some of these traction devices that can pull them a little bit straighter. And, they, and these are very limited studies, by the way you know, actually have shown some benefit. Of course, they're very cumbersome, require a lot of time, a lot of use, and uh, kind of long-term use, if you will, to show some of this very marginal benefit. But there has been some benefit. Mm. Certainly, uh, there's been a whole host of, you know, oral agents, to pills, tons of them that have been studied. And you're right, and, and in general, most of those pills have failed to show any real significant benefit in long-term studies. Now, the, the thing I think uh, we talked about a little while ago was some of these new injections that we can use, especially it's a collagenase injection called Viaflex mm-hmm. currently, but it does break up the scar tissue that is in Peyronie's disease. This has actually been the first thing that's been very effective, uh, very clinically proven and well-randomized studies to show good improvement in penile curvature and erectile function. Uh, but that's pretty much reserved for people who have curvatures greater than 30 degrees. Okay, which I, di- I didn't bring that up to panic the caller. Like, caller, uh, I don't think you yeah. have Peyronie's disease. Sure. Dr. King doesn't think you have Peyronie's disease. Right. But just in case there's some people out there listening who do or might have the symptoms that we've described that are Peyronie's disease, I wanted to make sure that we got that info out there as well. But to the caller and to, to your questions – absolutely morally acceptable to have a one-night stand or a multi-night stand if you disclose. So disclose. You'll often find yourself disclosing to someone who also has herpes, whether they know it or not. And uh, don't worry too much about your dick with a 20% bend. That's within the range of normal bends index. Wouldn't you say, Doc? Uh, I would totally agree with that. Can we hold you for one more call? Can you take another call with us? Happy to. Hi, Dan. Uh, This is a bisexual woman from the Southeast. And I am curious about my boyfriend's dick. Uh, he's got ED, and like when he's 
he can be soft and come really hard and then he'll be hard and not be able to come at all. And it takes him a long time to get up. And like, that doesn't bother me. It doesn't, I mean, it bothers him, but it doesn't bother me. He's got no feeling in his penis and he's, he's never really had any. But recently I discovered uh, at the very base of his penis, there's like a nerve bundles that like, because I'm bi, I know how to rub a clip pretty well. And if I rub it like a clit, he'll come. And it's not any part of his penis. It's like the very, very base of his penis. It feels like a clit. And I'm just curious, is this, does this ever happen to any man? Is this normal? If it's not normal, that's totally fine, too. I would just like to know if bundles of nerves can bunch up in different places around the penis and how that can help us in the bedroom. So this is a new one for me. Not ED, not people who can come when they're soft and be hard and take a long time or not be able to come at all. I've heard of that, of course. But a, a guy having at the base of his penis a bundle of nerves that if his girlfriend, who knows how to treat a clit because she's bi, treats it like a clit, he comes, he climaxes. I've not heard of that. Have you heard of that? I'm going to be totally honest. I've not heard of that one. So, um, But, you know, I think if you look at the anatomy of how the nerves run in the male, and how they develop, uh, uh, you know, I was thinking this through, it could be possible that some sort of nerves during the development uh, could stop and end up in this potential location. Well, it is true that uh, why not? The, the physiologically, you know, we're all like one amorphous gender and then comes this sex differentiation, comes the hormone soup that moves some of us toward male away from female. The scrotum is the labia, sewn shut, and the, the penis is a giant clitoris. You know, dicks and clits, dicks and, you know, male junk and vulvas, all made of the same basic component parts and assembled uh, in utero during sex differentiation. I guess I could wrap my head around the possibility that this guy is a guy, has a dick, but during sex differentiation, he didn't get the nerve endings sent to the penis and the head of the penis where most guys have their nerve endings. He kind of got maybe a vestigial clit spot at the base of his cock instead? Is that something that am I, am I Dr. Frankensteining this a little too much? Is that, am I crazy? Or is for me imagining that that is something that possibly could happen as a normal variant possible? I think you should, first of all, uh, claim that term vestigial clit spot, because I'm pretty sure it's not in any medical literature <laughs> that I've found. But that being said, I would love, you know, I mean, it'd be interesting actually be an interesting patient to examine. I mean, I, I do wonder how the rest of his anatomy is. I mean, there was not much information provided on, you know, the shape and head of the penis and, and how everything else lies, because uh, I would imagine that there's some nerve, um, sort of abnormal nerve pathways that there may be some other anatomic issues that are going along with it. But if, as described, it's purely a nerve phenomenon, I think that'd be very interesting. Um, one thing I will say is that people's perception of pleasures, you know, we, we talk about G spots in, in the female and how that can vary from location to location. There's, there's some areas that are more likely to, to stimulate than others, but every person really has an individual sort of appreciation of what they find pleasurable. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, some, some people find the urethra incredibly pleasurable to stimulate, whereas other people would find it extremely painful. So there's quite a wide variance out there. You know, I think it's, it's probably more appreciated in females that there's different areas, but certainly in, in men as well, I think we can't say that the stimulation of one spot is going to be uh, one size fits all for all, for all, you know, 
I guess, uh, phenotypic males, if you will. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a big, big spectrum out there. But this is one that I would say lies on the end of the spectrum that I have not seen yet. So, And I, too, uh, I, I second the thought that it would be really interesting to examine this guy. Not that I'm a professional, not that I'm a doctor, not that I should examine him, but perhaps you should. Because, of course, my head instantly went to some sort of like way on the hard-to-detect intersex spectrum of, of genital variants. Sure. Uh, whereas you're citing, and it's true, and it's been true in my experience of different men's penises that some people like a little emphasis here. Some people prefer a little emphasis there, but if there is really kind of a nub or a node, if it's, if it's a raised bump that she can sort of feel, it depends on anatomically what we're talking about here with this guy. If she just like stumbled over one particular spot, that's like no different physically or visually than any other spot on his penis. But if she at the base, if she provides pressure there, it does something. But if there's some sort of like clitty thing there, some bonus second head, the head of the penis, but also the head of the clitoral <laughs> glands is there somehow. Maybe it's a parasitic twin, but it's all clit. Who knows? But he's got a, you know, if you really want an answer, maybe take him to a doc and, and talk it out. But otherwise, he's lucky to have found you, caller, as a girlfriend that you were experimenting and digging around and going to different places. Because a lot of people, men themselves about their own dicks, but also people whose sex partners are males, just figure I only need to pay attention to the you know top 30% of the shaft and the head of the dick and it's going to do it for him. And that's not true for all guys and because he's with you you were he was lucky enough to have a girlfriend who found the spot that does it for him and maybe he can stop thinking of himself as having ed no absolutely i mean uh, uh go for it i mean i think you, you found you found something good there and uh and and just you know keep continue exploring sounds good dr stephen king board certified urologist private practice here in seattle thank you so much for jumping on the phone today all right thanks dan thank you hey dan i'm a 24 four-year-old dude living in Arizona. So my question involves my family and uh, I guess my romantic relationship as well. The matter at hand is pot and something I like to do. I don't feel the need to justify why I do it. It's just something I do. Um, My girlfriend also consumes and, um, we enjoy it together. It's a part of our relationship, uh, and she respects. Uh, sometimes I don't do it with her, and she's all right with that. And sometimes I do do it with her. She's okay with that, too. She's extremely supportive. Uh, we've been together for about a half year now, and uh, I care about her a lot. And the thing is, is my family's caught me with it a couple times, and no matter what, I will catch resistance about it and no matter what the context is is I'll always be seen as you know the troubled son who's you know destroying himself and destroying his body I guess over time when I establish myself and I'm living away from them it'll become part of their reality maybe I'm impatient maybe things won't change I'm just not sure I just I really feel the need to justify it. I I don't think you know, I need to have a reason, and whatever reason I'd give them wouldn't be good for them. So how should I handle this? How do you mend things with people close to you who support you, who think they're doing uh, the best for you and have the best intentions for you, and that conflicts with your own autonomy to live your life and 
can't live if you please. You were really clear about having a girlfriend and it's not a problem for her and you both enjoy a little pot together. You left out some relevant details though. On the non-relationship side of life, on the education front, on the gainful employment front, how you doing? If you're freeloading on mom and dad and living in their basement and you're stoned 24 hours a day, it's understandable that your parents might connect your lack of ambition or drive or having your shit together to the pot use. If you were sitting in their basement all day long and you didn't have your shit together and you weren't smoking pot, they would find something else to blame. But pot is the obvious villain in the piece. If you are directionless, not in college or haven't finished college and high all day long with your layabout girlfriend in the basement eating Cheetos and watching the TV, if you have your shit together, if you're gainfully employed, if you're working your way to self-sufficiency and mom and dad are looking at occasional pot use as some sort of problem as if you were playing with fire or sabotaging the rest of your life potentially because of the demon weed. And didn't Jeff Sessions say that it was a gateway drug to opioids? It's fucking not. Jeff Sessions is crazy. Then it's just a cultural and generational divide. And your parents are stuck in this reefer madness horseshit about what pot does to people. And as that may be the case, you are living with them. You are going to have to downplay it just to keep the peace for your own sanity, not their sanity. Fuck them. But just so they're not in your hair about it, be a little bit more discreet about your pot use. Smoke and then go home. Don't go home and smoke. If you don't live in a legal weed state, go on a road trip. Visit a couple of the legal weed states, Alaska, Oregon, Washington, California, Colorado, Nevada. Visit a legal weed state. Stock up on uh, edibles and then hide them from mom and dad lest they accidentally tuck into your breath mints one day and wind up stoned themselves and give yourself a zone of pot deniability just to keep the peace, just to get them off your back. Not because you should have to lie to them, but because being a little discreet about it right now is going to be better for your living situation, better for your sanity, better for their sanity. And then once you're out, you're on your own and you're on your own two feet. Mom and dad can't tell you what to do or how much of it to do or smoke in your own place. This is in response to the uh, dog person who's taking her dog to the dog park and her dog is humping every other dog or lots of other dogs. That is not a sex behavior. That is a dominance behavior. And that is why a lot of the people who know anything about dogs are getting upset because your dog is, is asserting dominance over other dogs. And other dogs who don't like it may start a fight over it because he's basically saying, I am being dominant over you. Get thee to a dog behaviorist. It can be trained out. Do not socialize your dog with a lot of other dogs while this is happening because you will run into a dog or a dog owner who will really take offense at this and it may start a fight and you don't want that in a dog park. This is a comment for episode 595. As far as dogs being in the same room when you're having sex, I agree with you. They're just dogs. Although one of my dogs is a rescue and I tell you, if there is any spanking going on or loud noises, he has to be in the other room. It's a hard limit for him for sure. Dogs do have feelings. We're not crazy. Hey, I just have a comment for the woman with the dog and the dog park and people being sex negative about the dog. 
my comment is this. You're not a dog parent. A parent to a kid is a parent. That's parents. We own that word because having a dog, I've had dogs, plenty of dogs. I've had kids. I've got four kids. There's a big difference between having a kid and having a dog. It's like night and day. They don't compare at all. You can't board a kid. You can't leave a kid at a kennel because you're going to go away to ski for the weekend. And you don't go through what you go through emotionally or mentally when you have a dog. You go through that when you have a kid. That woman did not just call the Dan Savage podcast to ask about sex negativity in regards to her dog. Call a vet or a dog trainer. This is a show for humans. And Dan doesn't even like dogs. Get out of here. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a comment or a question for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. If you like my political rants, my usually political rants, not this week, but usually a political rant at the top of the show, you will love me on Blabbermouth, the Strangers Weekly News and Politics podcast hosted by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Eli Sanders. Me, Eli, and Rich Smith discuss and argue the news of the week every week on Blabbermouth. Another podcast you might want to check out, The I Anonymous Show, Portland-based comedians reading real-life people's real-life confessions in front of a live audience. Check it out. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. And speaking of Twitter, grumble, floof tweets, please consider this another vote in favor of having Nancy become your permanent Lovecast co-host. She is smart, she is funny, and she has one of the best radio voices I have ever heard. I agree. I get Nancy on the show as often as I can. I, I ask her every week to take a question or two with me, and she is great at it, and she is blushing across the table for me right now. I promise you, Nancy fans, I have her on as often as I can. Thank you for the tweet. We will try to have Nancy on even more often. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by that same Nancy, sexy radio voice, Hartunian, and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth, and Nancy, sexy radio voice, Hartunian. We'll be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading. <laughs>